Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, Dan Aykroyd's Batshit Crazy Podcast. My name is Scott White, and this is my first podcast, not counting the intro. Uh, what I do on this podcast is I'm going to review movies that Dan Aykroyd has been in. I'm going to review the entire movie and then his uh, particular performance in that movie. And I started off with a doozy. A doozy. The first, my first episode is going to be the movie 1941, starring pretty much everybody in Hollywood at the time. Holy crap, there are so many actors in this movie. From start to finish, they're introducing new characters an hour, an hour and a half into the film. This film lasts two and a half hours. And I'm not going to lie, people, it was a bit of a struggle to get through. I actually had to stop one time and watch something else because... For this movie is odd where it has everything going on and nothing going on at the same time. This movie is extremely boring in my opinion. And a movie can be anything, but it just can't be boring. Which is which is weird with all the directed by Spielberg, uh, co-written by Robert Zemeckis. Like I said, just about every a top-notch actor and comedian at the time in this movie. And 95% of this comedy falls flat. Because, first of all, you don't know who the protagonist is. There's no person to follow in this movie. There are tons and tons of subplots that go nowhere, that could be taken totally out of this movie. And it wouldn't affect this movie at all. And we actually have two rape subplots, which is horrifying. Oh, so those definitely could be taken out of this movie. Now, 1941 was uh, out in 1979, and this came out after Animal House. This is an ensemble cast, but I think the studio was hoping to make it another John Belushi movie. And here's one thing. If you go into this movie thinking it's a John Belushi movie, because I know his name's at the top whenever you see it advertised, um, you know, his name is out there. His picture is out there. Wild Bill. This is not a John Belushi movie. John Belushi is hardly in this movie. And Dan Aykroyd is hardly in this movie. Well, everybody is hardly in this movie because there's so many people in this movie. They're all vying for screen time. You get going, you, you start, fo- you know, if you start following a character, don't get too attached to them because chances are they won't come back in this movie or you won't see him for quite some time. If you're also uh, looking for a Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi comedy bu- uh, buddy comedy movie, that's not it this either, because they have no single scenes together. Uh, Aykroyd and Belushi I, never appear on the screen together in this movie. Uh, there's one scene, I watched the extended version, at two hours and 26 minutes. This movie is two hours and 26 minutes. And... I recently watched The Blues Brothers, which is about the same running time, and that movie flew by. Like I said, this movie was a drag to get through. I don't know how this got made. I don't, I don't editor. Ugh. Anyway, I digress. So there's absolutely no scenes between uh, Aykroyd and Belushi. Now, there is an added scene at the end of the movie where uh, John Belushi is crawling onto a, a Japanese sub, and Dan Aykroyd's in the water, and they both salute each other. That was not in the original theatrical release. That was when they put it out on DVD and Blu-ray. They added that scene. So that is the closest thing you get with Aykroyd and Belushi being on the screen together. Belushi actually helped Aykroyd get this movie because, going back to Animal House, Belushi's first movie, and this is actually Aykroyd's real first movie uh, 
coming off of Saturday Night Live. So it was this and then the Blues Brothers. They originally wanted Ackroyd to be a D-Day in Animal House, but the producers didn't want to change because they wanted Bill Murray to play Boone and they wanted Chevy Chase to play Otter and they didn't want this to be a Saturday Night Live movie. So none of the only Belushi was the only character from Saturday Night Live to be in Animal House. So in 1941 came along, Belushi uh, rallied for uh, Ackroyd to get the part of the sergeant in this movie. So that's how he got this part in the movie. There's also, I'm going to talk about this later, about connections in this movie, but also John Candy and Joe Flaherty are in this movie uh, from uh, Second City, where Belushi and Ackroyd both started. I can't help but think that they uh, that Belushi had a hand getting them in the movie as well. So, right off the bat, it's not a Belushi movie, it's not an Ackroyd-Belushi movie, it's not an Ackroyd movie, it's an ensemble piece. We actually start the movie with a Jaws parody. So we, the movie starts, there's this woman swimming in the sea, you hear the Jaws music, and this Japanese sub comes up, and she's trapped on this, she's hanging from the Japanese sub. So, and this was only four years after Jaws, so it was, Jaws was a phenomenon, but it wasn't destined to be the classic that it became. So I, I, it took a little, all I can say is with this scene is that Spielberg has a sense of humor about himself, because he parodied his own movie in this movie, which I thought was fun. And this just sets up the scene, uh, this sets up one of the many plots in this movie. Well, I guess it sets up the main plot where the United States is being attacked by Japan. And this is a Japanese submarine with a German, uh, a German officer, Christopher Lee, in the sub. And the funny thing, watching Christopher Lee speak fluent German is actually pretty cool to watch. And I think this is supposed to be the joke where he's speaking German and the Japanese are speaking Japanese and they perfectly understand each other because we're given subtitles. The one thing, and also the thing I do like about that is they didn't do the English-speaking with the German accent, the English speaking with the Japanese accent. The Japanese spoke Japanese, the German spoke German, and we had the subtitles, which was very, very nice. So now we've established, okay, Japanese sub outside of L.A. attacking American soil. Then we cut to this diner scene where these two kids are dancing in the, dancing in the, they're dancing in the kitchen, and they're throwing plates around, and they're cleaning, and you you think that one of these two is going to be our protagonist in the movie, and one of them is. Not really, but anyway, so we're, dan there, we're in this diner, and this is where we're first introduced to uh, Dan Aykroyd and his group, which also include John Candy and Treat Williams. So this is uh, Dan Aykroyd's crew uh, in this movie. And we, we go out, and immediately... It, it's just a weird, weird opening. It jump cuts from one thing to another. This, there's this guy sitting at the bar, and he keeps getting his face dunked into different things. Like, all of a sudden, there's a birthday cake in front of him for no reason, and his head gets squashed into a birthday cake. Uh, it, it just didn't make any sense. It was sort of a jolting beginning, because there's just a lot of jump cuts that don't really make sense. Uh, Ackroyd is playing his typical, uh, where he speaks, where he can speak quickly, and this time he's using army jargon. That character that he does very, very well. He does it very, very well in this scene. And I, I this, like I said, this movie was a was basically a chore to get through. It has, it's like thirty nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I can see that. And it's like five point six on IMDb, and I think that's a little too high. And then I saw eighty two percent of Google users enjoy this movie. I don't understand that at all because this movie is dull, and it is not funny. And the biggest sin for a comedy to be is not funny. I laughed three or four times in this movie, and most of them were at uh, John Candy. John Candy got the laughs in this movie, and one of them is in this one, where they break out a scene, uh, 
where Treat Williams get in the fight with this guy, Wally, and all of a sudden somebody throws Wally a chicken leg. Tunjun Candy yells, he's got a leg, look out! And that was a pretty funny line. Okay, well anyway, we have the opening scene we've established, and of course, uh, during all these scenes, radios are playing that, you know, this is just, the movie is set right after Pearl Harbor is bombed, so now paranoia is high in this movie, and all the radios are, are promoting that Pearl Harbor just got bombed, so everybody's on a huge, on the edge of their seat, and this is, we're about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes into the movie, and then we see Belushi for the first time, Wild Bill, he comes flying in to a gas station, and he lands, and he tells him to, you know, he tells him to fill him up, and he just comes in, and this character that Belushi is playing is almost identical to uh, Blutowski in Animal House. So he immediately comes into this store while his plane's getting filled up, and he starts stuffing his pockets through a, full of canned soup. The, the, the comparisons between this and Animal House are, uh, you, you can't miss it. And he shoots the radio, and, and, then he, then all, and then his plane takes off for no reason, and he has to chase it down the road. Now we cut to an airfield, and this is where we meet Tim Matheson's character, the horny army captain. And I'm going to be introducing a lot of characters in this movie, people, because this movie is just way too many characters. Subplots could just be... This movie could have gotten it down to an hour and a half, hour 45, hour and a half. In the DVD, they added scenes. They could have taken these scenes out and taken more out and gotten this down to a tight... I think it had to be a Spielbergian ego just to think that they can make a movie this long. Anyway, I'm digressing. So now we cut to an airfield, and we see uh, Tim Matheson uh, having sex with a a reporter, a female reporter in the in the car. And I want to say one thing. I want to say before I get into this is the movie looks great. The costumes look great. The cars look great. It is a wonderfully shot movie. It is a wonderful looking movie. All the all that they put into it. It it, it looks great. Unfortunately, what's in the movie is not great. Anyway, everything looks great in the movie. Everything is shot well, and, I, and it got Academy Awards for cinematography and sound and all that. And it probably, uh, not awards, but nominated. And it deserved that because, like I said, it looked good. The movie looked good. looked sounded good. Uh, so, once again, we're introduced to Tim Matheson's character. We see him, we see him having sex with uh, this female reporter, and... Uh, it's interrupted because he is the general aide, and the general shows up. And the general, Robert Stack, the general shows up with his secretary, Nancy Allen, and Tim Matheson sees Nancy Allen and tries to, he recognizes her, he wants to have sex with her immediately because that's all his character wants with women is sex, so he sees her. And Nancy Allen's thing in this movie is like she loves planes. If you get her into a plane, she'll, you know, she'll drop her panties, and that is that. So he coaxes her into a plane, and this is one of the first quote-unquote rapey uh, scenes in the movie where she's in the plane, and while she's pretending to fly the plane with her eyes closed, he's raising her skirt and, and opening up her blouse, and it just it's just uncomfortable. It's just uncomfortable watching because she's kind of into it, but then again, she kind of doesn't know what's going on because she's caught up in anything. Anyway, she's, he's using a weakness against her to get sex, which is... Which is wrong. Well, you know, he doesn't get sex. And uh, and one thing here in this movie is all the jokes are telegraphed. You can see the jokes coming a mile away. So when they happen, they're not they're not funny to begin with. But when they finally happen, they're not funny because you saw it coming. 
And because they're, they're having, you know, they're quote unquote, he's trying to have sex with her in the plane and the bomb bay doors open and we see this bomb and her hand keeps hovering over the bomb, you know, over the switch that drops the bombs. And while she's doing this, Robert Stack is making a speech how there'll be no bombs in California. So, you know, eventually what's going to happen is that lever's going to get hit and that bomb's going to go off in the airfield where he's making the speech. And that's exactly what happens. It is anticlimactic because we all saw the joke coming. We cut to Wally, who was, I don't know the actor's name, but Wally was one of the, the, the dark-haired kid. I don't know why I'm telling There was a dark-haired kid and a blonde-haired kid at the beginning of the movie, and you think one of these is our protagonist. One of them is our sort of protagonist, Wally, the brown-haired kid. So now we're following Wally. And he's going after his girl. His girl is the daughter of Ned Beatty. So now we're introduced to Ned Beatty and Lauren Gray. Two more characters. Well, we're introduced, I mean, these are characters, and we're introduced to tons of characters. So, so we're introduced to Ned Beatty. We're introduced to Lauren Gray. We're introduced to Wally's girlfriend, and we're introduced to Wally's uh, girlfriend's best friend. So there's four more characters that we're introduced to. Because Wally's girlfriend and Wally's girlfriend's friend are now part of the USO, and they are there to entertain and to dance with army men. So now Wally is mad because Wally's not in the army, so his girlfriend has to dance at the USO with army men, and he's not an army man, so he's jealous that she may run off with an army man. And while all this is gone, Wally stole her his girlfriend's father's car, Stole Ned Beatty's car. Now Ned Beatty is out to get Wally. So he has to, so her girlfriend, this is all very convoluted. I know it sounds, and it doesn't need to be in the plot. What it is, is Wally has a girlfriend whose dad hates him. And that's, and that plot doesn't go anywhere. That's just a subplot a couple of times to, to get Wally hiding in a couple of places where humor does not ensue. We're at Ned Beatty's house, and all of a sudden Dan Aykroyd shows up with his giant gun. They have orders to leave this gun here because Ned Beatty's house is strategically placed somewhere. Blah, 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 blah. It doesn't, the, the thing is, it's a MacGuffin to put this gun in this place that will come back later in the movie. And once again, Dan Aykroyd is the fast-talking, technical jargon guy, and, and he's good in the scene. Oh, so now we cut back to uh, the Japanese sub, and they're sending men onto the mainland to find out where they're at. They're lost. Their compass is broke. So they're, so they're lost. They disguise themselves as Christmas trees. So you see these dozen Christmas trees running around the countryside, and they happen to stumble upon a Christmas tree farm. And Slim Pickens, another character, Slim Pickens run, you know, runs this farm. So he drives, up, he drives up and he sees all these new Christmas trees, and he's going to chop them down. And immediately... Once again, you see the joke coming. And this is like an old Three Stooges short where he's going to chop down these trees and they're men. And it, the ensue, you know, the wackiness ensues where he can't chop the trees down. And eventually, the Japanese capture him and bring him back to the sub where they question him. They want to find out where Hollywood is. That was their target. They're in, they want Hollywood. The interrogation, they find a box of Cracker Jacks on Slim on Slim Pickens, and in the Cracker Jack box is a compass. And wow, and that, and that, that was, I thought that was kind of clever. They actually found a compass in a Cracker Jack box. Well, Slim Pickens jumps up and he grabs it and he eats it. And so the rest of the scene of Slim Pickens in the submarine is him on the toilet trying to 
trying to crap out this, this compass so they can find out where they're going. Now we cut again, once again, we cut back to a scene of Belushi just flying. He's, he's up in the air, the wild boo yonder. The thing with Belushi is, Belushi is one of the greatest, was one of the greatest facial actors of all time. He could relay anything through his facial expressions, which was wonderful. And that's all this scene is. This scene was supposed to be meant for comedy. It's not, Belushi is working with what he has, but I guess it, the scene is just to show that Belushi's just sort of an odd duck who does what he wants and he hates Japs. Yeah, that's... That that's the main key. He's talking to himself how he you know he wants to kill all the Japanese. Now we cut to a, a, a Jesus. There's so many cuts and so many characters. So I may if you've seen this movie and I miss anything, just let me know what I missed because I'm doing all I can here, just trying to get all the information I can into this movie. So we get to we cut from uh, we cut from Belushi flying to this amusement park where we meet two more characters, Murray Hamilton and, Ezzy, and Eddie Deason. And these guys are put up in a Ferris wheel just to watch the coast. And the, the hilarity is supposed to be that Eddie Deason is a ventriloquist, so he has brought a dummy up with them. So it's Murray Hamilton, the dummy, and Eddie Deason in this, in this Ferris wheel. And once again, the jokes don't work, and once again, it is boring to watch. And once again, this could have been cut out completely of the movie and it would not have affected the movie at all. What this movie could have done is picked any one of these subplots and just followed it, and it would have been a better movie than all of these subplots sort of crammed together. This is just a hodgepodge of stuff that we just don't need. So we cut back to the sub, and Slim Pickens convinces the, the Japanese soldiers that he needs to be alone so he can poop out the compass, and while that's happening, he throws his boots in the toilet, so they think he's drowned in the toilet. Anyway, Slim Pickens escapes from the sub, and that's it. We're done. No more Slim Pickens in the movie. So if you were attached to that character, forget about it. He's gone. And we still have like an hour and 45 minutes left in this movie. Absolutely no reason to have Slim Pickens in this movie. But they, they felt that his scenes were funny enough to keep in this movie. We cut back to Robert Stack and uh, they're going to see Dumbo. This is a big, this is a, a thing in the movie where Robert Stack, Robert Stack is playing a character, he's the only person in this movie that doesn't believe in the Japanese hysteria. He's actually quite level-headed and he actually wants the facts before he makes any decisions. And all he wants to do, basically all Robert Stack wants to do in this movie is see the movie Dumbo. That's all he wants to do. So there's a scene where he's walking into the movie and he gets a correspondent from a colonel who thinks that the Japanese are already in the country and Tim Matheson, who is with the, the general, senses, okay, what I can do is, he convinces Nancy, uh, uh, Nancy Allen to go with him to visit this colonel because this colonel have a plane and once again, if he can get her in the plane, they can have sex. This is all Tim Matheson's, in the, this is his whole his whole character arc in this movie is to have sex with Nancy Allen. That's all he wants to do. And, and Nancy Allen, you, she starts off as a strong female character where she actually punches him in the face. And it's just like, you know what? You know, you're not going to get in my pants. Well, eventually she succumbs to that. And we'll get to that later. So uh, a, a, a female character starts off strong, but then falls apart. 
cut back to Ned Beatty's house, and his daughter is heading out to the USO. And once again, here's another joke that's telegraphed a mile away, where he has a talk with her, and he says, you know, you're going to be dealing with a lot of, a lot of army men and a lot of military men, and they're going to want one thing on their mind. And basically, Ned Beatty tells his daughter, you know, have sex with all these soldiers. Uh, you see the joke coming, and it's not a funny joke. So he's basically pimping out his daughter. We cut back to barracks. These bar I don't know where these barracks are. I honestly, there's so many cuts to so many places in this in this movie, people. I can't keep track. This big, giant black man just comes, just comes busting in the door. And he's part of Dan Aykroyd's uh, crew now. He's like, I don't want to be here, but I am. And John Candy just... He, man, this is funny and racist. I hate to say that. But uh, John Candy starts playing a... A big old southern, you know, like foghorn leghorn. Well, let me tell you something, son. And he just sort of tries to degrade. Uh, John, uh, John Candy actually plays a racist in this movie, which is kind of sad to say, sad to see, but he does. So he just sort of demeans this, um, this, uh, this black soldier until the black soldier just crashes through a door and starts to choke him. And uh, so now we cut to the USO hall. And this is where a majority of the movie takes place in the USO Hall from this point on until the, uh, until the, the, the climax of the movie. And the thing is, and once again, I, I kept looking at this movie, and it seemed like if you're not enjoying a movie, if you keep looking at how much time remains in the movie, and you're disappointed that, oh, there's that much time. So that's what's happening. So we're in the USO, and... Uh, we see Wally, he tries to get in the USO club in his zoot suit, but he can't because the USO club is just for, so he just wants to go in and see his girl, but he can't get in because all he's, because you can't get in because of a soldier, and, um, once again he runs into Treat Williams, and Treat Williams plays a total asshole in this movie, so Treat Williams and him getting a, Treat Williams and Wally getting fights through most of the movie, that's another subplot. Well, anyway, uh, so anyway, we cut back to uh, Robert Stack watching Dumbo, and I just wanted to put this. We cut back, and it's the scene in the it's the scene in Dumbo where his mother is chained up, and she's trying to touch and be with her son. And honestly, that little clip from Dumbo is the most touching thing in this entire movie. It's the it's the best the best scene in this movie is a scene from another movie, which was I don't know sort of surreal. I just wanted to throw it in. Yeah, the best thing in this is the fact that it's not <laughs> Dumbo was the best thing in this movie. So then uh, we cut back to the USO hall. And Wally gets the great, the big idea. What I'll do is I will switch uniforms with a sailor. This drunk sailor is getting thrown out, and what he does is, and this is quite stupid. So the sailor is getting thrown out by an MP, and instead of waiting for the MP to throw the drunk soldier out and, and switch uniforms with the drunk soldier, he knocks out the MP and takes his uniform, which is just adding an extra step and an extra step of danger. Now Wally has on the uh, MP uniform, and he walks into the USO club. Now, during all this time in the USO club, uh, Treat Williams is after Wally's girlfriend. And this is another. Uh, so Treat Williams is hell-bent on having sex with Wally's girlfriend. This is another underlining rape subplot in this movie, which is uncomfortable. 
Wally busts in, and he steals his girlfriend back, and he starts dancing with him. And now we have this huge dance number in the middle of this movie. In the middle of this comedy, there's this huge dance number in the USO. And this goes on. I don't know if this dance number is welcome or not, because up to this point, it's been boring and no laughs. So at least this is something interesting to look at, the dance number. It goes on and on and on. And we find out that Wally is a civilian in army clothes, and then a fight scene breaks out. So we have a dance scene followed by a fight scene. So this is a huge chunk of the movie. It, it's just a dance scene followed by a fight scene in the U.S. So, and it's all... It's all irrelevant for the most part. It's not needed. And it, you don't need it for padding either because the movie's two and a half hours long as it is. Anyway, that's what happens. Cut back to uh, Tim Matheson and Nancy Allen. They're driving out to this old airfield, which is run by the crazy colonel played by Warren Oates. So we are like an hour and 40 minutes in and we're still introducing characters into this movie. Characters that we don't need. And I can't believe that Tim Matheson is going through this whole rigmarole just to get laid. I can't feel that Nancy Allen is a special enough woman to, to want to have sex with when he could basically, he was having sex with a woman when we first met him. I don't think this man has any, any trouble having sex with women. And the thing is how I compared uh, Belushi's character, his Animal House character, this character, once again, this is basically Otter from Animal House. He's just playing Otter from Animal House in a different movie where he's just a horn dog and he's just out to out to bed any woman that he sees. We cut back, he lands at War Notes and he he War Notes has one plane. One plane. And he decides, well, I'm going to risk my life and fly this plane even though I'm not qualified just so I can have sex with this woman up in this plane. And as soon as they take off, John Belushi lands in the same place, and he just and he just comes up and he just starts yelling. He just starts yelling, "Where am I? Where am I?" And he starts taking drinks of coffee. And he sp so he's basically there. This is just exposition. He lands. He drinks stuff. He spits. Warnos tells him that Japanese are in the are in California, he's in Pomona, he's like, where's Pomona? That way, and he hops up in his plane, he drives away, uh, drives away, flies away. Once again, why this scene? I guess the scene, I guess the scenes where Belushi is just there is just to let Belushi be Belushi, but the scenes are not funny. And Belushi was a funny, funny man, but the scenes are not funny. I don't know why they're in this movie, they just drag it out, okay. Cut back, and once again, so once, I did say that the scene from Dumbo is the best scene in the movie. So we cut back to Robert Stack watching Dumbo, and then they show the racist crow scene from from Dumbo. Uh, it's like, of all the scenes to show, that's the one you picked to show in this movie. Again, Dumbo is the best thing in the movie and one of the worst things in the movie. <laughs> We cut back to the uh, we cut back to the USO club and the fight is still going. Not, but the fight has spilled out into the streets. It's right in the streets. Sailors are fighting uh, army men. Fighting, they're calling them zoot suiters or civilians. Everybody is fighting everybody in the streets. All the USO, the USO brawl is just. We're in the streets now. It's just going on, and it's going on. And there's a weird a couple of things in this brawl which I saw. One scene where the soldier, there's a, a fire truck and the ladder is out and the soldier gets picked up by this ladder and thrown through a window. 
Well, when he gets picked up through this ladder, his lips clearly say, oh, fuck. But that is, that's not heard. I'm guessing they were trying to go for a PG rating, and his lips, you know, he said, oh, fuck, and they're like, no, we're not going to have that in this movie. You want this to be PG. But he clearly says, oh, fuck. He's thrown through this window of a restaurant, and in the restaurant is an old man eating spaghetti, and that old man is John Belushi. I don't know why they had him do this in this movie. I don't know if this was an extended scene and they just cut it down of all the things to cut down. Maybe this was the one they cut down. But the only reason I saw, I saw it a, a glimpse and on DVD and I was able to rewind. If you're watching that in the theater, it happens so fast. You would not know that's John Belushi in that scene. I don't know what the point of that was in the movie. Why did they have him dress up in another outfit? Why did they have him play this character? And if they had him play this character, why didn't they have him on screen longer so people could at least recognize that it was John Belushi? It's all very confusing. Dan Aykroyd and his troop, they're called in. We got to stop the riots in the street. And they start shooting up the place. Which is ridiculous. They start using live ammo around all these people and all these civilians, which I don't think, I know it's absurdity but I don't think anybody in any army in their right mind would do that. So Dan Aykroyd, after he starts shooting people up, he makes this big impassioned speech about how Americans shouldn't fight Americans. It's actually a pretty decent speech and he delivers it in a pretty great way. I think this part of the movie was supposed to swell your patriotism in you and it does. It's a, it's a very effective speech. During all this, the Tim Matheson, while they're in the while they're in the plane, while they're having sex in the plane, the sex plane is picked up by radar. They think it's Japanese, so they sound the alarm, and now everybody is to, everybody is trying to shoot down this one plane that is flying over Los Angeles. So they're having sex in this plane. The people on the ground are trying to shoot down this plane. John Belushi comes in out of nowhere, and he tries to shoot down this plane. Now, they cut to the USO, and it's just, it's all disheveled. Like I said, everything is broke. There's people lying on the ground. And Joe Flaherty, he just, uh, he just says this cringeworthy, cringeworthy line. He goes, and he goes, next time we'll bring some Negroes in and have a race riot. And it was just, oh. Uh, you know, maybe it's it's just a very cringe-worthy line. I don't know if it was back then. It probably wasn't, but now it is. Just listening to it now. The plane starts coming over Los Angeles. The the plane where they're having sex in. So everybody starts everybody starts freaking out and starts shooting at the plane. They're shooting at the plane from the from the bottom, uh, from the ground. Belushi is shooting at the plane, and the plane starts to go down. And while the plane is going down, it hits the Hollywoodland sign and. Cuts out the. That's a cliche in just about every movie that used to on how the Hollywoodland sign became Hollywood. It's a cliche in a lot of movies. It's a cliche in this movie. The plane goes down, it wipes out land. So now we just have the Hollywood sign. The plane lands. Uh, it's shot down. It's actually shot down by a guest appearance of, from Lenny and Squiggy. There's a shot where Lenny and Squiggy are are, are manning a, a gun. And they see the plane and they shoot it. The plane lands in the middle of uh, the La Brea Tar Pits. Now, while the plane is getting shot down, a 
Christmas door Santa gets shot, and it falls down and it lands on Ackroyd's head. For most of the rest of the movie, Ackroyd is a completely different character. So this, this Santa clunks him on the head. Now we cut back into the USO hall, and Wally and Treat Williams are both in there. They're both unconscious. And Treat Williams wakes up and grabs Wally's girlfriend and drags her out for more rape, which is which sucks, but that's what he's doing. He's trying he's trying to have sex with her, and she doesn't want to have sex with him. So Wally follows him out and inadvertently grabs a, a, a sergeant's jacket. So now he has a sergeant jacket on. So he comes running out, and everybody thinks that he is a sergeant. When Ackroyd gets hit on the head, he looks at him and says, Kid, I want you to take out all the lights in this square because they're trying to shoot out all the lights. They want to have a blackout. Ackroyd's crew, who knows this is a civilian, take orders from him just because he's wearing a coat with stripes. That didn't make any sense at all. Now, Belushi's plane is flying around because the sex plane is down. Now Belushi's plane is flying around. So now they think Belushi's plane is a Japanese plane. And they start firing at Belushi's plane. We cut to the streets, and the kid, Wally, is now shooting out all the lights. And he sees his girlfriend trying to get raped by Treat Williams. He beats up Treat Williams, which is which is good. You know, that's nice to see, because Treat Williams has been a dick this whole film. While they're shooting at Belushi's plane, Belushi's plane gets hit. It goes down in the middle of Los Angeles. And a giant Santa falls on top of him. This movie has a lot of... I don't know, Spielberg, uh, anti-Christmas, <laughs> but in this movie, there's at least three, maybe four, giant Santas that just fall. One falls down and knocks out Dan Aykroyd. Another one falls down and traps Belushi on the ground. So Wally runs up to Belushi, and Belushi says, kid, there's a sub out there, a Japanese sub. you got to go get it. And then we realize, well, okay, that sub is by his girlfriend's parents' house. we got to go out there and save him. Kid Wally jumps on the tank, which he is now in charge of, and he starts driving it to the ocean. Uh, we get Belushi out from under the Santa, runs into Robert Stack, the general, and they have a, they have a back and forth, and Belushi just shows about how crazy, is, crazy he is, and he steals a motorcycle, and he starts driving for the ocean, for the Japanese sub, and, and let me and let me back this up. And this is something I want to add. All through this movie, Treat Williams is trying to rape Wally's girlfriend, and while this is happening, Wally's girlfriend's best friend is in love with Treat Williams. So this woman is after a man who is trying to rape her best friend. Just let that sink in. Just let that sink in. Everybody, now we're at the point where we're heading to the ocean and we got to stop the sub. The sub thinks it's in Hollywood because at the amusement park, the lights all come on. The, the, the two are in two are in the Ferris wheel looking out and word gets that, you know, there's a Japanese sub and they send somebody to rescue him. Well, they send their kid to rescue him and this kid turns on the, the Ferris wheel. He actually turns on the, the whole amusement park. So the Japanese sub thinks this is... Hollywood. So they think this is Hollywood. So they start shooting at, and once again, you can see this joke coming. I called it. It's like they're going to shoot that, and that Ferris wheel is going to come off and start rolling. And that's exactly what happens. So while all this is happening, while they're bombing the, the, the Ferris wheel and the amusement park, Ned Beatty gets into the gun that was left to him by the Army. Even though the Army told him not to do it, he gets into the Army, and he proceeds to shoot up his entire house which is the joke 
over and over and over again. Now, I will say the jokes don't work, but Lauren Gray is very good as the hysterical wife in this scene. She does a very, very good job. But the jokes aren't good. It's just the same. Once again, it's another Three Stooges. They're just destroying their house piece by piece with a gun. They did it once. It wasn't funny. They did it four times. It still wasn't funny. Now all this is happening. Now the tank rolls up. The tank rolls up with Wally in charge and all of the crew in there. And here's another awkward racist scene. The, the black soldier is once again choking John Candy. And for somehow John Candy, there's flour. And I don't know why there's flour in the tank, but there's flour in the tank. So he puts flour all over the black soldier's face. Well, during the scuffle... A manifold blows, and it blows black soot all over John Candy's face. So now the black soldier is white, and the white soldier is black. And the black soldier, they start laughing at each other because the black soldier takes its finger and runs it down John Candy's cheek and shows him that he's black. And Candy just freaks out, like, get it off of me! Get it off of me! I don't want to be black! And it's just, wow, that was, I don't know why that was in the movie. It was, it was blatantly racist, blatantly unfunny, and blatantly didn't need to be in the movie. And the, the black soldier ends the scene with a line, why don't you get into the back of the tank? Uh, very racist, very not needed. And the tank starts shooting at the, the tank starts shooting at the sub, and the sub starts shooting at the tank. Somehow the, the tank rolls off the pier into the water. Now while this is happening, Belushi who has stolen the motorcycle, just runs right up and he drives into the ocean and he starts swimming towards the submarine. Everybody is in the water. The guys from the Ferris wheel are in the water. The guys from the tank are in the water. John Belushi's in the water. All these people are in the water while the sub is starting to, starting to submerge. John Belushi, he swims, he gets aboard the sub, and this is the only, like I said, the only thing, the only time Ackroyd and Belushi ever acknowledged that they are together in this movie. And they weren't in the same scene. This was added later, as I said. Belushi climbs up on the sub. He shoots a salute to Ackroyd. Ackroyd, who is in the water, shoots a salute back. And that's it. Belushi gets into the submarine, and they all pull their guns on him, and he tells them to take him to Japan. That's it. So we're done with Belushi. So we... Cut to the next day, and everybody is just out front of the home, Ned Beatty's home, in the front yard. The soldiers are out there, uh, his kids are out there, Wally is out there. The general shows up, Robert Stack General, he shows up, and Dan Aykroyd basically explains what happened. He explains what we just saw to the general, and... Uh, Ned Beatty makes an impassioned speech about how he's not going to let the Japanese ruin his Christmas, and I'm going to, I'm going to nail this Christmas wreath onto the onto the the front door of my house. And once again, you can see it, something's going to happen. He's going to hit that nail, and the whole house is going to collapse. Which is it? He hits that nail, the whole house collapses. It slides into the sea, and uh, that's basically the end of the movie. The end of the movie. Uh, and I am uh, speechless. What did I think in 1941? Man, this thing was boring. It was just a boring, unfunny movie with too many subplots, too many things going on. It didn't know what it wanted to be. And I know it wanted to be funny, but it didn't pull that off. It was hard to watch. And would I suggest watching 1941? The only way I would suggest watching 1941 is because of John Belushi. 
he did he he made so few films that just to see him in something that's nice that's nostalgic but it's not worth uh, the movie for the Dan Aykroyd portion of the podcast. The Dan Aykroyd portion of the Dan Aykroyd is batshit crazy podcast. I am going to grade Dan Aykroyd's performance in 1941. And Dan Aykroyd's performance in 1941 is solid. It's a two and a half hour movie. He's maybe on screen 30 minutes out of the two and a half hours. But when he is on screen, he plays that character great. The straight talking, the fast talking uh, military jargon sergeant, he plays it to a T. He plays it great. And then when he gets bonked on the head, he becomes a totally different character for the last part of his performance, where he's just flighty and he's just saying things at random. He At one time, he puts a, a pantyhose over his head with two orange, and he says, I'm a bug, I'm a bug. It wasn't funny, but it was such a departure from the character that he was playing. So he played both uh, a very intelligent, very straight-laced, a very incoherent. He played them both very well. The movie isn't solid, but what he did was solid in this movie. I wanted to touch on a few things. This movie has there's a lot of connections in this movie, which I noticed. So I wanna I wanna hit on those before the end of the podcast. So the movie stars Belushi and Aykroyd. They are well known for being on Saturday Night Live together, and of course doing the Blues Brothers and Neighbors together. So they are known as a pair. They were known as a pair at that time. Now, another connection is John Landis makes a cameo appearance in this movie, and John Landis directs them both in The Blues Brothers, which had a cameo by Steven Spielberg, who directed 1941. You see where I'm going here? Now, there was also John Candy and Joe Flaherty were in this movie, both members of Second City, both members of SCTV. John Candy and Joe Flaherty were also in Second City with Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. So there's another connection there. As I said before, uh, Lenny and Squiggy, oh, was it uh, Michael McKeon and David Landrew? I hope I'm saying his name correctly. They were in this movie, and Penny Marshall was in this movie. So Penny Marshall, so we had Laverne, Lenny, and Squiggy all in this movie. So there's another connection. Warren Oates is in this movie, who was in the movie Stripes with John Candy. Another connection in this movie. Of course, there was uh, Murray Hamilton and Lauren Gray. They were both in Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg. Another connection. Five degree, eight degree of separation movie, where a lot of people in this movie were connected in one way or another. Which is sad, because that's basically the most interesting thing about this movie, is the connections that you can make. And, if you look at the end, one of the soldiers is a very, very young, a very, very pre-facelift Mickey Rourke. So keep your eye out for him. And uh, that's about it. So this was my first episode of Dan Aykroyd is Batshit Crazy. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments for me, please leave them below. Uh, this is going to be a bare minimum podcast right now. I'm going to try to throw in some sound effects later as soon as I learn what is going on and how I can do that. But uh, other than that, let me know what you think, and I'll see you next time. If you want to support me, this podcast, and all my other projects, please visit my Patreon page, uh, patreon.com backslash Scott White. I would appreciate it.